been asked to speak on the leader uh, as an example, as a model, and we're going to be looking together at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The context here is that Paul is writing to a church he helps uh, start. This church is very uh, strategically positioned. Leon Morris describes Thessalonica as the largest and most important city in Macedonia and the capital uh, of the province. So it was a uh, significant uh, uh, city that Paul was writing to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our heart. You know that we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the words of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning. We pray that you would be with us and that you would speak to us and you would help us to be uh, effective examples to the people that you have entrusted to us. And all God's people said? These uh, first 13 verses in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 is an amazing portrait of Christian leadership. In this passage, Paul has at least seven broad brushstrokes that help us discern the contours of Christian leadership. And now, before we look at these kind of seven broad brushstrokes, I just want to make a few uh, framing uh, comments that will, will help us uh, discern this call to be an example. The first thing that's just worth noticing from this passage is that leadership existed in the earliest days. 1 Thessalonians is one of the very first Christian documents, and by chapter 2 of one of the very first Christian documents, we uh, get the issue of leadership being front and center to the discussion. We uh, live, uh, for those of us in the West, in a culture, particularly within the church, that has undervalued leadership. We, we tend to be na uh, naturally suspicious of leadership. And it's just worth noticing that leadership in the church isn't a 21st century wicked mutation, but rather an original design of God and part of his expression of grace towards us as his people. 
But the second thing that's worth noticing in this passage is that Paul is willing to give in a defense of his ministry. The situation here is that Paul has uh, only been at the church for a short while, Gordon Fee, things probably between six and eight months. And then he's had to leave and he's had to flee uh, at night for his safety. And that's really caused some within the community really to question his motives and intentions. And what is very interesting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that Paul doesn't begin this chapter by, by just saying, you know, how dare you? How dare you question the man of God? How, how, how dare you think that I had wrong motives at all? No, no, what Paul does is he, he carefully and systematically lays out what his ministry was amongst them. Now, you could say that uh, in a 1 Thessalonians uh, context, uh, a leader just up in and bolting could cause legitimate questions, and so it's appropriate that he goes to that level uh, of explanation. But if you read 2 Corinthians and you understand uh, some of the objections that the Corinthian church had to him, which was at a far more petty level, it is just instructive the lens to which Paul was willing to go just to lay out an orderly defense of what his ministry was. He, he, he never just powered up on them and said, how, how dare you bring uh, any objections against me? Now, now, why are these two framing thoughts important? Well, I think it's important uh, because it's important that we uh, don't relate to leadership in an unquestioning way. It, it's possible to uh, overvalue leadership, interesting uh, Pete's mentioned this already, you can, you can uh, overvalue leadership, so when your leader asks you to jump, you just go, how high? And uh, there's very little space for engagement or discussion, and uh, churches and uh, eldership teams can easily uh, slip into this. The leader becomes the kind of uh, papal decree, speaks es ex cathedra, and nobody questions the, the man of God. So it's, it's possible to... Uh, fall into that trap uh, where we, we overvalue leadership, but it's also possible to undervalue leadership, where we don't really think there's any place for leadership. And therefore, how, how do we straddle the, the, the over-leadership emphasis or, or the under-leadership emphasis? And I think 1 Thessalonians provides the answer to that. And the answer to that is that we seek to be examples uh, more than we seek to try and be exceptions. The call on Christian leadership is a call to be an example. The whole chapter, Paul is calling and setting forth his example amongst them in order that they might follow his example. That's most clearly seen in verse 10, where he's, he lays out his ethical behavior amongst them. But really, the whole chapter is Paul saying, this was my example among you. Don Carson uh, insightfully notes when he analyzes the requirements of eldership, he says the requirements for eldership are remarkable for being unremarkable. Don Carson points out that all the requirements for eldership are required of every Christian with the exception of two, mustn't be a recent convert, and must be able to teach. Those are the only two requirements of eldership that aren't required of every believer. So, so, so every believer is meant to practice hospitality. Every believer isn't meant to uh, get drunk. So the, the, the requirements of eldership in its essence is a call to be an example, not a call to be an exception. 
And that's a challenge for us because we live in a time and a culture which idolizes the exception. We live in a celebrity culture. People are always looking for the exceptional individual. And so when we get into leadership, we can feel the pressure to be an exception when actually all the Bible's asking us to do is to be an example. To be an example of what it means to follow Christ. And really this uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 provides a beautiful portrait of what this example looks like. So let's look at the example Paul puts before us. Look, let's look at this portrait of Christian leadership. The first thing that Paul is clearly in this passage is courageous. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Paul begins the section by reminding this congregation of the courage that was involved in proclaiming the gospel. Paul reminds them of his experience in Philippi. We know from Acts 16 that that was no small uh, uh, scenario. Paul was seized, attacked by a crowd, stripped, beaten, severely flogged, thrown in prison. This wasn't a guy that ran for the hills when times got tough. No, this was somebody who proclaimed the gospel in spite of strong opposition. That narrative played out against in Thessalonica, where he had to experience strong opposition motivated by jealousy that ended with a mob riot and people baying for his blood. Paul just reminds his congregation, hey, I'm not a fair weather preacher. I, I, I don't just run for the hills when the, when the going gets tough. I, I preach the gospel in the harshest of environments. The second thing that Paul reminds this congregation of is the fact that he was pure in heart and mind. Notice verse 3. Paul says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. In order to serve the people of God, it's absolutely critical that we have two key ingredients. Firstly, it's important that we have purity of heart, in other words, sincerity of motive, and secondly, clarity of mind, that our proclamation is based on truth. As we work through uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, what we're going to discover time and time again is that Paul makes statements like this. Hey, hey I'm, I'm, I'm not duplicitous. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fake. I'm, I'm, I'm serving you out of a sincere heart. Leadership in any form, let alone the church, uh, the motive of the leader is absolutely critical, is it not? When we're following anybody, we're asking ourselves, hey, what really makes this leader tick? What's really motivating them? Why are they doing this? Why do they want to have this role? And so the motive question is absolutely critical. And through this chapter, Paul just nails the idea of trying to fake it before the people of God. The idea that you would lead people by faking it, by trying to trick them, uh, by being duplicitous is extraordinarily destructive for the church of Jesus Christ. The idea that a, a, a church would ever be led by individuals that were duplicitous, that were fake, that were putting up a charade, it, it is just crazy. It just, just has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. But what is very interesting in verse 3 is that Paul doesn't simply say, hey, you need to really have a purity of motive. The reason why you're doing this needs to be out of a purity of heart. No, Paul actually lifts the bar higher by saying that you, you mustn't just have a pure heart. That is important. Your motive is critical. But you also need to be clear-headed. You also need to be clear-headed. Paul says that our appeal 
didn't spring from error. Simply being sincere isn't enough because you can be sincerely wrong. And friends, in a lot of Christian contexts, people just are peaceful if they've discerned that the person is sincere. This is a sincere person who's operating out of a pure motive, therefore that's okay. And actually, simply being sincere isn't enough. We are actually to be clear-headed in our leadership. So listen to what Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 2. Paul describes a group where he says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, they're sincere, they love Jesus, they're passionate, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They're sincere, but they're misguided. Or, or Proverbs 19 verse 2 counsels us as follows. It is not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. Simply to be passionate and sincere isn't enough. We need to ensure that we, uh, what we believe and what we call people to is actually true. Which is why Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of God. Friends, for some of us as elders, it's not good enough that you're a nice guy and you're really sincere. You, you really need to get good theology into you. You really need to take seriously the word of God. It's not good enough that you've got other guys on the team that really get the word of God. One of the requirements of eldership is being able to teach, which means that there needs to be a doctrinal clarity about you that will really help and serve the people that God has called you to lead. The third thing that we see in this passage is that Paul knew that he was somebody approved and entrusted. We see this in verse 4. Paul highlights the fact that he was somebody who was approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Christian leadership is about God's call and God's gospel and does not have its origins in man at all. Now, when you hear that, you can feel like, wow, that's really subjective. God, God's gospel and God's call. How, how, how do you define that? How do you work that out? But I just want to say to you, it, 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 it makes a, a megaton difference if you know that God has called you to do this versus whether you thought this was just a good idea or other people in the community thought that this was a good idea. And the place where this really plays itself out is when things get really tough and difficult, where things really go south. At that point, if you know that you are called by God, God has called me to do this, then we, we don't have an option, do we, whether we're going to bail or not. No, God's called me to do this, so I need to carry on doing this. Paul knew not just that he was called by God, but he also knew that he was an entrusted with the gospel and the gospel was from God, which means the gospel wasn't, uh, uh, we weren't able to, to kind of change and manipulate the gospel in, in, in the face of changing cultural uh, situations. No, 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 because Paul knew that he was called by God and that he was entrusted with the gospel from God. Those were the two big non-negotiable. What God said, this is what I've called you to do. So that's what he carried on doing. And this is the gospel that he's going to preach. And he's not going to change that, even though there were people baying for his blood. Even in that hostile environment, we don't change the gospel because it's not our gospel.
gospel. It is a gospel from God. He, he, he was both called and content that what he had received, both call and content, was from God, and therefore he needed to be faithful towards him. The fourth brushstroke that we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that Paul was somebody who lived to please God and not men. We see this in verses 4 through 6. What's very interesting about this chapter is that you can think if Paul was somebody who really just sought to please God and not men, that he would then kind of be kind of nonchalant with people not really interested in them because, well, he's going to really serve God. But what we find as we go on, and we'll see this in this next couple of points, is that Paul was absolutely accessible. He was somebody that radically cared for people. But what he understood was that the most effective way of caring for people is by loving God more than you love them. Paul knew that the most effective way of pastoring and eldering and caring for people was to put God first at a very fundamental level because Paul didn't overrate his pastoral skill. Paul didn't think that he could outlove God. Paul knew that God was the most loving person in the universe. And therefore, to align himself with God and to make pleasing God the goal would be the absolutely best way that we can care and love people. In our time and culture, people want to kind of take the edge off God. Oh, well, we can't really say that because, you know, that's going to be hurtful to people. The idea is like, you know... God's doing well, but he, he's kind of just like he's in a teenage phase and we just need to kind of soften some of the things. We, we just kind of need to give a more mature face to God that will be more helpful for our culture. No, we, 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 don't, we don't need to protect our culture from God because God loves us way more than we could ever. Paul didn't overrate his ability to love people more than God. He submitted to God. He knew that God was the most loving person. Friends, the danger for us is that we, uh, we don't uh, seek to please God more than we seek to please people. The huge danger for individual leaders or eldership teams or churches or movements is that we make our goal to be palatable. That's where the idol of success can come in. If it's all about expansion and growing, then we're really going to do whatever we need to do to get that growth and that expansion we could never imagine being faithful to God and being rejected by culture like that's never happened before. But friends, if, we, we, if, if we're to be leaders in the church of Jesus Christ, then the fundamental motivation of our heart needs to be, are we leading in a way that pleases God? Like a lot of these conversations around sex and sexuality and what's okay and what's not, it, it, just, it just starts at the wrong point. If you just ask the question... What kind of behavior pleases God? You can solve a lot of these issues. But in our churches, a lot of people aren't concerned about pleasing God. They're concerned about pleasing themselves. And so then it becomes a very complicated discussion. But actually, fundamentally, it's not complicated. If our starting point is, hey, how am I meant to behave in a way that would please and honor God? The fifth brushstroke that we see from Paul's model of Christian leadership is that he was parental. We see this in verses 7 and 8, and we see it in verses 10 and 12. Paul says, I uh, was caring among you like a mother. 
Paul, Paul is saying, I'm gentle, I'm nurturing, uh, I'm supportive. Paul didn't mind saying, I was like a, a mother among you. Certainly in parts of America, kind of brash bravado and has kind of been seen as a badge of Christian leadership. Uh, and it's just really not in the New Testament. Jesus defined himself as, hey, this is what I'm like. I'm, I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. That's the guy we serve. Gentle and humble in heart. The idea that when I become brash and when I start powering up that I am a true leader, I'm a leader of courage, I don't think that model flies in the New Testament. You just don't see that. Paul says, hey, I was like a mother among you. I was gentle. I was nurturing. I was supportive. I was fatherly among you, which meant I encouraged you. I comforted you. I urged you to live lives worthy of God. I was accessible. I was accessible to you. The awesome thing about mom and dad is you can just, you can just interrupt, can't you? Like, like some of you work really hard at teaching your kids not to interrupt. But like I do something different. If I'm, if I'm in church at, at the end and I'm standing there and I'm talking to somebody and my kids come, I'll just go, sorry, just excuse me, and I'll engage my kid. And then when I'm finished, I'll chat to them. Because, you know, I'm really going to have a relationship with the kids, my kids from the rest of my life. I might not know this person next week. Why am I really prioritizing them over my kids? I just, I, I don't do that. My kids are accessible to me. And that's what Paul said, I was, I was accessible. So when our churches get bigger and more successful and there's multi-layers of leadership, if we get further and further removed from people, I think we, we operate in... Uh, in an ethos that was different to what Paul said. He said, hey, you know what I was like, like among, amongst you? I, I, was, uh, I was accessible to you. The sixth brushstroke that we see from the Apostle Paul uh, in this chapter is that he was hardworking. We see that in verse 9. The context here is a church in poverty. Because it was uh, a church in poverty, it required Paul to have two jobs there are a number of advanced churches that we're working with where this is the scenario. Uh, a full-time job plus pastoring people at the same time. And Paul says, I just want to remind you of what I did. I, I had two jobs. I worked hard. Notice uh, day and night. How unfortunate is that? Did Paul really have to include that? Day and night, he's working hard. Uh, the slack, lazy pastor uh, really... Uh, wasn't in Paul's paradigm. The, the, the picture of pastoral ministry for Paul wasn't functional semi-retirement uh, for the glory of God. No, no, the, 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 this, this was somebody who was incredibly hardworking. And I guess if I was in other groups, I'd need to lean on this more. But I, I think I'm getting looks from the wives in the front row. And um, I don't think that's a danger for us, but it's just worth noting that, that Paul was, uh, he was hardworking. He was somebody thoroughly committed to the cause of Christ, even, that, even if that meant him having a second job. The final brush stroke that I want us to notice in this passage is that Paul knew that at his best, he was a funnel, not a fountain. 
Paul knew that at his best, he was a funnel, not a fountain. Notice verse 13. Paul tells us here that when he preached the word of God, they received it not as the words of men, but as it actually was the word of God. Notice the, the, the beautiful balance here of the proclamation of the word neither being undervalued nor overvalued in terms of the giver. So the word isn't undervalued. It's not, well, that's interesting, Steve. We're glad you had that perspective on things. It's interesting to hear your perspective. No, 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 no. When, when they heard the preach word, they weren't listening to the words of men. They were attentive to the word of God. And when they received, they didn't receive from an individual. They actually received from God, which meant they had a very high value on the instruction. But the source of the instruction wasn't actually the individual, although there was an individual delivering a message. The person that was genuinely speaking through the word was actually the Holy Spirit. This gives us a beautiful model for Christian leadership. Christian leadership at its best is a means of grace. There is only one fountain of grace. There is only one God of grace. Which means at our most anointed, at our ultimate best, we, we are a funnel, not a fountain. At our very best, we are conduit through which God has been pleased to bless others. But the source of that blessing, the source of that grace, the source of that truth isn't ourselves, but actually the God who we proclaim. So here we get this incredible portrait of what a Christian leader ought to be. What if I'm not living up to that example. So let's apply this personally. We've looked at this portrait in 1 Thessalonians 2 and you think, hey, I'm, I'm falling short in this. What do I do? Well, what you need to do is you need to run to Christ. You need to confess your shortcomings and you need to ask Jesus to forgive you. If you find yourself repeatedly doing that in a particular area, Maybe you don't need to just confess that to Jesus. Maybe you need to confess that to your eldership team and say, hey, as I've thought about my call to be an example, I've just realized in this particular area, I'm not living up to that example. And I'd really appreciate it if you could help me be a better example in that. We, we lean into community in order to receive help. So that's for us personally. And friends, we need to be diligent in that. If, if, if the primary call of Christian leadership is a call to be an example, then we need to be diligent at auditing ourselves, confessing sin where we need to, and asking God for help, and then speaking to others in order that they may help us in a journey of sanctification. But in closing, it may be worth reflecting on what do we do if those that lead us in some form aren't being the portrait of Christian example that they ought to be? Let me suggest three Ps that could help you. If there's some person in some form of leadership responsibility in your life that isn't fulfilling this portrait of Christian leadership, can I suggest three Ps? The first one is patience. 
I think our disposition towards each other should be what I like to call a cubicle mentality. You know when you go, uh, when your wives go, when you go uh, shopping for clothes with your wife to uh, support them and that they, uh, they always like to try things on, is this true, is it not? They don't just want to look at it, they want to see how it fits and, and even if they really, really like the first one they put on, they just want to check the other hundred to make sure that they weren't better. And, and, and when, when your wife gets a clothes, she'll go into a little cubicle, correct, and, and, and she'll get changed and then comes out. So these shops have designed a little space, a cubicle, a space to change. And I think the way that we relate to other leaders should be one of a cubicle mentality, that, that we should give people space to change, just like we're not perfect, we're on a journey, they're also on a journey, so our general disposition should be one of patience. We should have a cubicle mentality. We should allow them space to change. Secondly, we should be prayerful. We should be praying for our leaders and asking that God would grant them grace that they might change and be better examples of what it means to follow Christ. But there is a third P, and the third P is pursuing. And the pursuing is being willing to have the courage to have a conversation that speaks the truth in love. And I would generally say that my experience is people are much better at speaking to other people about the problems of a particular leader than they are to speaking to the actual leader with whom they have a problem. And we don't really move the game forward at all. Because if that's the ethos of what we're doing, most people have a weakness, correct? And so you can discern the weakness that the person has, but you won't go and speak to the person about their weakness. You'll just go speak to somebody else about their weakness. And then that person says, you know what? You're right. That is a real weakness in that person's life. And then they go tell somebody else. Like, have you noticed that with so-and-so? It's like, yeah, I... I and so we're all having the wrong conversations. Instead of saying, hey, this, this is a concern that I've got. There's, there's a pattern that I'm seeing here that, that I think is less than what Jesus wants you to be. It, it's less than what this church deserves. And I just, can we chat about that? Can, can we pray about that? Now, now, just because somebody has an observation doesn't necessarily mean that they're accurate. You know, there's all those kind of safeguards. But there ought to be an ethos where we can have those kind of conversations. And certainly my dream for advance in this partnership where there's uh, a leadership community, that this would be an environment where we can both be patient, prayerful, but also have conversations that would actually help all of us come to a place of maturity. Because we want to be the kind of examples that the Church of Jesus Christ deserves. And we're not going to just get there by ourselves. We truly need others helps. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you uh, for your word. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and our, what he went through and how he responded uh, is truly a wonderful model towards us. And Lord, I pray for each one of us. Lord, if there are issues or areas in our lives that we've We've become accustomed to an area of weakness. We've accommodated it instead of repented of it. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that in your mercy and your grace, you would reveal that area to us. 
so that we can be the men and women that you want us to be. Lord, I pray for any here that are sitting with issues related to a particular leader that they're just suppressing or when they release it, it's not to the leader, it's to somebody else. Lord, I pray for the courage and the wisdom and the gentleness and the graciousness to have a conversation where they're able to speak the truth in love. Lord, I pray for those that are leading teams here. Lord, I pray for an extraordinary security in the grace of God and the love of Jesus to be men that can be open to those conversations. Lord, I pray for the folk in our advanced scrum that have responsibility for caring for other churches. Lord, I pray for a humility and a desire to be an example to give you glory and to truly walk in the way that you'd have us walk. Lord, we know that it is by your grace and your grace alone that we can become the men and women that you want us to be. But Lord, I pray that your grace towards us wouldn't be without effect, but that we'd be men and women that are being transformed into your likeness day by day. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to hand over to Ryan.